Hey, Jay, so Shatterstar was gone for a long time. When did he turn back up? Oh, he reappeared in X-Factor, Miles. Really? It's hard to picture him working for the government. Oh, no, 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 not not that X-Factor. X-Factor Investigations. Oh, right, the one Jamie Madrock started. Yeah, that's the one. Anyway, Shatterstar was being mind-controlled by Cortex. Wait, who's Cortex? He's the dupe of Madrox. Okay, that's not unprecedented. They've gone evil before. Whom Madrox sent into a future timeline to die so that he could then absorb the dupe's memories. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 246 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to everybody's favorite in-your-face jam, older teenagers or younger adults, X-Force. Yay, the heirs apparent to the new mutants, full of feelings, full of mullets, and full of guns. You know, I'm never going to stop being surprised by how much I look forward to doing X-Force episodes these days. Right? I'm not sure I'm ever going to stop being surprised by how much I love this book. Like, just from from the way I just described it, it it's still feels really counterintuitive that I like it this much and it's got this much heart, but it really does. Again, it is really, really the heir apparent to the golden age of the New Mutants. That said, I don't know that the arc we'll be covering today is quite the best example of that, but nonetheless, we have Adam X, we have the Mutant Liberation Front, we have mysterious villains who we're pretty sure we know who they are, but there they are anyway, so there's some good stuff with which to work. And we have a sort of a kind of little bit of a reunion, speaking of those mysterious villains, but first, it's been a while since we checked in with these guys, should we maybe do a little bit of background? Let's do. So, Cable thought dead after blowing up real good with Strife at the end of Executioner's Song, is back with X-Force, formerly mostly the New Mutants. This cable is new and improved. He accepts the agency of his young charges, he talks about his feelings, and he occasionally spontaneously generates a mustache for a single panel. Also, he tells dad jokes now, and it's great. Oh, Cable, you've come so far. I'm so proud of him. X-Force itself has been going through kind of a lot lately. Former New Mutant Ileana Rasputin, de-aged to early childhood, recently died, which would have been bad enough even if Magneto hadn't interrupted her funeral to rant about mutant supremacy. And that would have been bad enough even if Magneto hadn't then ripped Cable apart, nearly killing him. Dianu. <laughs> Dianu. <laughs> the rest of X-Force has been dealing with their assorted traumas as best they can. Siren mostly has been drinking and drinking and drinking, and Warpath has been angsting and angsting and angsting about Siren drinking and drinking and drinking without actually directly addressing it. Shatterstar has been obsessively perfecting his body and avoiding any real connection or commitment. Richter and Farrell have both kind of been being jerks. Cannonball Sunspot and Boom Boom? Well, they're actually pretty much okay. Except for adjusting to the whole thing where Cannonball's apparently an immortal external, and thus Cannonball knows that he'll outlive everybody he loves. I guess that part's kind of rough. Meanwhile, 
A new player is on the board. This is a shadowy, long-haired mutant with fancy speech bubbles. Everyone's got fancy speech bubbles these days. This fellow, however, is named Rainfire, and he has broken the Mutant Liberation Front out of prison. And he's got a plan. They're going to steal the Declaration of Independence. Really? Uh, no, no, they're going to kidnap anti-mutant government jerk Henry Peter Gyrick. I don't see why they can't do both. No, that's true. Recruit Nicolas Cage. He'd actually be great in, well, any of the 90s X-teams, really. I feel like he'd fit in really well. I think so. Okay, total tangent, though. Jay, have you seen Mandy? Yes, I've seen Mandy. Okay, good. Listeners, if you haven't seen Mandy, and if you're okay with, um, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, there's a lot going on with that movie. There are a lot of content warnings that go with it, but all with the caveat that it's deeply and profoundly, bizarrely surreal. I really liked it. Your mileage may vary. My interest on this is also at this point pretty profoundly conflicted since I'm working with one of the screenwriters. Oh, man. That's... that's bonkers. Wow. Dude, remember when I told you the Thor... the Serial Box Thor book is gonna be amazing? The Serial Box Thor book is gonna be amazing. Wow, what a time to be alive. Right? Well, anyway, speaking of people who are alive and not all of whom will be over the next many issues, uh, X-Force, right. So, the Mutant Liberation Front is going to capture Henry Peter Gyrick, but meanwhile, meanwhile, former new mutant Danielle Moonstar, Mirage, has been hanging out in Asgard for quite a while since she became a Valkyrie through complicated circumstances. Good for her. It seems like she's probably been having a really nice time. I bet she's still up there, happily, riding around on her winged horse, doing... stuff. Exactly. In fact, I don't even know why we brought that up. There's no way that could possibly be relevant. Not even a little bit. That brings us to X-Force number 27, Liberation Through Subjugation, written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Matt Broom, inked by Bud LaRosa, and colored by George Russos, and X-Force number 28, The Axe Falls, speaking of Mandy, written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Antonio Daniel, or Tony Daniel, later, inked by Kevin Conrad, and colored by Mike Thomas. We're just going to cover those two issues together, because it's basically one big story between the two. We're going to do the same with the next couple. I kind of feel like we should talk about Matt Broom, and specifically the fact that as far as I can tell, he's here mostly to help us really, really, really appreciate Tony Daniel. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying Matt Broom is a terrible artist by any means, but his style does not compare well to Daniel's. I I don't know what else he's done since this, and it's perfectly possible that it's gotten better, but whether or not Matt Broom is a good artist, these are not well-drawn issues. Um, one thing you wrote down in your notes, Jay, was that people's jawlines are very strange when Matt Broom draws them, and you are not wrong. They're super weird. Everyone has, like, trapezoidal heads. Okay, so we take Matt Broom's jawlines and John Romita Jr.'s, like, early 90s-era lips and cheekbones? Nope. Nope. And then we take Wills Portacio's area that he drew for Xavier? Nope. There's got to be some kind of forfeit when you have when you bring that up. Oh. There need to be consequences. I'll put a dollar in the area jar. God damn it, you made it, you somehow just made it even worse. No, we're doing that, okay, we're doing that actually, we're doing that now. There is an area jar. That seems fair. Take a jar, cover it with some gray pinstripe fabric. You can probably find some in the remnant bin at the, um, the woolen mill. Every time, I think you already retroactively owe it a couple bucks, too. We'll donate it to a good charity. Oh, I was going to say you're using it to buy me drinks next convention. 
Uh, that, that's a pretty good charity. That seems reasonable to me. Or, or I guess we can donate it to a real charity. What we should actually do is donate it to the Hero Initiative. Oh, yeah, that would work. I'm sure they'd appreciate it. It's probably best we don't explain the details. Sounds reasonable to me. Well, anyway, so like we said, the Mutant Liberation Front, right? They're now being run by a guy with very impressive hair and total silhouette shadow art named Rainfire, and they're going to kidnap Henry Peter Gyrick, the Walter Peck of the Marvel Universe. So I mentioned this when he first appeared, but I am still incapable of looking at Rainfire and not just absolutely believing with a sense of, is there, is there a way to describe object permanence, but the object isn't real, you're just really convinced it's there? Because every time I see Rainfire, I am absolutely, concretely, and unquestioningly certain that he's got an electric guitar strapped to his back. Probably. I mean, some of the anatomy in these issues is not so hot, so it might be back there somewhere. Well, Wildside, Reaper, Forearm, and Tempo of the Mutant Liberation Front sneak into Gyrick's compound, and during this sneaky, sneaky mission, Wildside and Reaper are exceptionally murdery, which is not really much of a uh, change from how they've been portrayed previously. But Tempo, who before had been the only member of the MLF with any sort of morals, is really uncomfortable with this, and for the first time, so is Forearm. We see the MLF, now that they're being run by a new person, sort of split between the ones who are all about complete slaughter of every human around and the ones who are about complete slaughter of only selected humans. I'm uncomfortable with any sign that Forearm has a distinct personality. Well, yeah, I mean, he's got all those extra arms. There's so much more room for personality in there. No, no, his personality is having those extra arms. Well, you and I must agree to disagree, and I'm just going to say, Fabian Nicieza in this issue of X-Force is on my side. Really? Yeah, look at all that personality. Miles, Miles, those are arms. Potato, potato. Anyway, Gyrick sends out his new anti-mutant biosentry prototype, Hardaway, to take on the MLF. Hardaway is this big, morphing, cyborg asshole. First of all, that was a vivid mental image you just evoked. Second, why do people keep on letting Henry Peter Gyrick do things? He made sense really briefly, and he's just gotten worse and worse. You know, it's all that anti-mutant hysteria. Makes people make very bad decisions, like making Hardaway. Yeah, so uh, so Hardaway is, is, is a, a person who is a cyborg, who's a big jerk. He, he is not... A cyborg asshole, that's a whole... I mean, he might have a cyborg asshole. He probably has a cyborg asshole. Probably. Well, he uses that cyborg asshole to kick the crap out of the MLF. But suddenly, the MLF gets some reinforcements. These are Locus and Moonstar. Uh, let's cover Locus first. She's simpler. What's her deal? Locus is what you get if you take Heather Hudson's Alpha Flight Guardian costume and stuff it to the brim with Sienna Blaze's personality. Basically, Locus is super terrible, and also she can teleport people around. But Moonstar is a woman in a fringed red outfit with a sort of generically Native American-looking mask who fires neural arrows that cause people to live through visions of their greatest fears. Does this remind you of anyone? It's Spider-Man. God damn it, I knew he was a threat and a menace. But, um, yeah, obviously this is Danielle Moonstar, and I say this now with a degree of embarrassment, because when I was a child, one of the big mysteries we talked about in the playground was who Moonstar was, and for the life of me, I could not tell you why. 
she is literally going by her last name. I mean, all other factors being equal. This would be like if I showed up wearing a mask and going by the mysterious surname Edidin. I know, it, it totally would. But the only thing I can think of, the only possible explanation, is that I was really reading all of my X-Men comics in a big mishmash. I was reading 80s stuff and 90s stuff simultaneously in no real order. And so it's possible that I didn't know that Danny was in Asgard, that she had been lost there. It's possible that I hadn't really read much New Mutants at this point, so I didn't fully know who she was. I don't know. It's possible that you were so scarred by strife that you just assumed everyone had a clone lying around. That is also a possibility. So, Locus finishes the fight by teleporting half of Hardaway away. Hardaway away? Yeah, sure, why not? Hardaway squared. Uh, so he's out of the picture. I'm sorry, I still can't get over the fact that you didn't know who Moonstar was. I mean, I had my suspicions. We all thought she might be Mirage. I just, I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean here. Like, I'm really, I'm just really struggling to wrap my brain around this. Yeah, I, I wish I'd kept a Moonstar journal back in the day. Oh, little innocent Miles. Apparently, this whole thing was a test from Rainfire to see if the MLF would do what it took, if they were ruthless enough to accomplish the goals he wanted to point them at. Are you a bad enough dude to kidnap a guy who works near the president? Basically that. So apparently the answer is, yes, the MLF are bad enough dudes. But Tempo once again takes a moment to say, I hate all of this so, so much. You guys are terrible. Yeah, um, Tempo is sort of the comparatively normal person dropped in with this batch of, of, of early 90s miscreants. And I feel so bad for her. I mean, she's definitely gone against them to do the right thing before. When the MLF showed up in X-Factor a little while ago, she was the one that saved a whole bunch of lives by making an anonymous phone call and not telling her team about it. Tempo is how your normal friends feel when you drag them to Comic-Con. Oh, God! I didn't realize we killed that many people at conventions. Eh, potato, potato. So, Locus easily kidnaps Gyrick, and the MLF teleports away to their new base, which is on Mother fucking Octopusheim. Jay, do you remember Octopusheim? I'm deeply insulted that you even considered that I would forget. I'm also deeply disappointed that despite living in this veritable treasure trove of weird-ass costumes, the MLF doesn't dress up in any of them. I know, right? I mean, the last time Cyclops was there, when he was hanging out with Lee Forrester and Magneto rescued them, he, he ended up with this awesome tunic that was mostly a big golden octopus. I feel like there's a lot of Cthulian, nautical, untapped, sartorial potential here. To be fair, Magneto is a supervillain with a lot of style and panache, and he was the one who, who gave Scott and Lee those outfits— and I assume Rainfire just lacks sufficient fashion sense to understand that that's what you do when you come into possession of Octopusheim. He's too busy practicing on his electric guitar. He, he just keeps on playing, like, the very beginning of Stairway to Heaven. They're all so sick of it. But he's terrifying, so nobody will tell him. Tempo, possibly because she's sick of hearing Stairway to Heaven, and possibly because she's sick of all the murder around her, goes to fly off around Octopusheim and brood, and she's met by Moonstar, who seems to have showed up mostly to be very dramatic and talk about her own reasons for being on the MLF. I fell screaming from the skies, an angel cast out of a heaven I didn't belong in. I've held life in my hands, 
I've stared death in the face. I got tired of never knowing which was the better alternative until he showed me the way. Until he showed me that an angel of death for humans could also be an angel of life for mutants. Okay, so obviously this is Mirage. The last time we saw her, she was in Asgard. So I did a little bit of research because I figured there must have been some explanation for why she was suddenly on Earth. We will later find out why she's with the MLF, but I don't think we ever find out why she left Asgard for Midgard, asterisk, caption, Earth. Now, in Marvel Comics Presents number 121, there's a short story called Of Faith and Fable, where we actually see Danny in Asgard doing some dueling with Mist, one of the Valkyries who'd previously been a New Mutants character, and being met up with by a Cheyenne deity called Hodamatanio. I'm sorry if I'm horribly mispronouncing that, who basically said, hey, you abandoned your faith for this one, you need to come back, and she said, all right, I will, but not yet. But that's all we see. We don't see anything between there and her showing up here on Earth. I mean, the Infinity Crusade was going on. Thor sort of got possessed and killed a bunch of people. So certainly there was some chaos going on in Asgard. But again, no direct explanation. I mean, maybe she's lying. Maybe she just had felt like she needed to come with a, up with a super, super dramatic narrative to go with this new persona. I mean, this is Danny Moonstar. She does enjoy drama. Well, and again, she's also kinda undercover right now. There is that, and we'll get to that much, much later. But in the meantime, our heroes in this book are not blind to all of the events occurring, because X-Force is spying on a FaceTime call between Nick Fury, Charles Xavier, Val Cooper, and Forge, who are all debating what to do about this whole kidnapping. I really, really enjoy how few fucks Forge gives. I know, right? Like, Xavier says, dude, the X-Men just got back from Genosha. They're really tired. And Forge says, well, X-Factor can't jump in because it looked like then we would condone Gyrick's terrible anti-mutant policies. Sorry, guys. I, yeah, I, I Forge, as the government liaison for X-Factor, is great because Val Cooper was all about corralling them. And Forge is all about enabling them, but also all about basically being an ongoing object lesson to the government about mutant politics and mutant lives. And it's great. It's really, really satisfying watching him just be like, nope, not today, buddy. This, of course, gives X-Force a chance to jump in and decide to take the case themselves. And I always enjoy scenes like this in 90s X-Books, where we basically see the different philosophies of the different X-Teams, the different priorities coming up against one another, and that really helps to find the teams against one another. That's kind of cool. Yeah, no, that's that is really cool. And it's again, man, I, I just I really don't get tired of, of Forge in this role. But this isn't his story. This is the story of X-Force. And instead of being cynical and playing parties against each other, X-Force just charges the hell in. And as they do, I gotta say, Matt Broom's version of Cable is even bigger than Liefeld's. You could fit like six boom booms inside a hollowed out cable the way Matt Broom draws him. Wait, do you think like do you think it's X-Force is like a bunch of Matryoshka dolls? Uh, maybe. I mean, they're all quite different size-wise. Do you remember that one Excalibur story where they all kind of phased together and Captain Britain was bigger, so you just saw Captain Britain? Maybe it's like that with Cable. Yeah, that seems reasonable. So X-Force does squad up to break into the MLF's Octopusheim base. There are some teams that are going to distract, some teams that are going to rescue, some teams that are just going to fuck shit up. And I really enjoy Boom Boom, Richter, and Sunspot running in as team blow everything up as a distraction as Boom Boom begins. 
Let's just cut loose and sort out the damage later. And Richter responds, Like to see the MLF Phoebe who can stand up to a combo of your plasma bursts? Foo, foo. My vibe quakes? <laughs> and Bobby's solar blasts? I don't know, I'm not sure how to do this one. Uh, I feel like I need symbols. It's, it's literally just S-K-A-R-A-S-H. That's a symbols noise. Scratch! Yeah, it is a symbols noise. Yeah, but Matt, Matt, can we get, can we just get some proper symbols here? Nice. Shatterstar, in the meantime, as team cut everybody up, just totally murders Reaper. But apparently he doesn't do it very thoroughly because Reaper will be back with no explanation before too long. I think Shatterstar has figured out that people aren't paying much attention to continuity. Okay, so he just feels like he can do whatever he wants with basically no consequences? That does raise a question, actually, which is why none of the Mojoverse characters are fourth wall breakers. That's true, yeah. I mean, they should be more aware of narrative conventions than, say, She-Hulk or even Deadpool. Well, Deadpool's got his own whole thing going on. She-Hulk she -Hulk learned about that stuff from another superhero. Oh, comics. I love them so. Who taught her to do things like take shortcuts in the gutters between panels. But yeah, no, like that would be a really interesting direction, I think, for instance, to take Longshot, who tends to just sort of be written as the repeatedly memory-wiped kind of ingenue. Like, having that as a component of him, you know, with the no memory and convinced of this thing that's clearly not true but actually kind of is, would be a pretty neat spin. Yeah, I mean, if we ever get an alternate universe version of Longshot again, and yes, I know we're technically not supposed to because there's technically only one Mojoverse, that would be a freaking awesome direction to take. Or if this, you know, 616 Longshot just got his memory wiped again. Yeah, that would work too. Well, meanwhile, Team B in another part of the base has encountered Moonstar, who quickly fires some neural arrows at the X-Force members that confront her. She shoots Sam with one of these arrows, and Sam gets these horrible visions of watching his friends and family die around him as he just lives on forever and ever. That's his greatest fear. Uh, she also hits Boom Boom with the memory of her father beating her, which is really cruel. But the moment that I think really cinches her identity for the rest of the New Mutants is when she posits that Sunspot, that, that Bobby DaCosta has already faced his greatest fear. Greatest fear. Magnum P.I. has been cancelled. I always appreciated the gloriously antagonistic relationship between Mirage and Sunspot, and I'm pleased that even in these trying times of the early 1990s, Nicieza remembers that. But it's, like, adorably antagonistic. They give each other shit, but they also really, really look out for each other in New Mutants. Oh yeah, well, right now one of them shoots the other, but you know, that's just for now. It'll be fine later. So, so is Bobby's greatest fear actually Magnum P.I. getting cancelled? I mean, I think it was. Now I guess he has a new greatest fear. Aw, oh, poor guy. Cable and Farrell do succeed in finding Gyrick, but are quickly taken out by Rainfire. The same Rainfire in his same golden armor over black silhouette with only eyes and teeth visible. I mean, okay, obviously Moonstar is Mirage, and I'm going to go ahead and say, obviously this guy is supposed to be some version of Sunspot, right? I mean, it's the exact same kind of silhouette and very similar powers. Kind of. We actually did a cold open about this guy a while ago. And it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous even by our standards. But yeah, that's, that's clearly what they're hinting at. And it wouldn't be the first sort of villain-turned future version of Sunspot that we've seen. 
Exactly. There was that time the New Mutants were tripping through time, and there was an older evil executive, Roberto da Costa, who they faced. So I buy evil business, Bobby, so much more than I buy Rainfire, Bobby. Completely agreed, yeah, and I'm really glad that's the direction that official continuity ended up taking. Okay, he is not a villain in official continuity. Buying AIM with cash does not make him a villain. Oh no, clearly not. I'm just saying that, like, future Bobby clearly realizes that the greatest superpower in the Marvel Universe is money. Valid. So, Rainfire does the whole we're-not-so-different-you-and-I thing to Cable, talking about how the MLF and X-Force are very similar, just their methods are slightly different, and... I like this because X-Force has always been defined as the extreme X-Team, but we've never really seen what that meant aside from them repeatedly taking Reaper's limbs off and then eventually killing him for no reason to no avail. And so seeing a version of X-Force that does cross that line, that does say, hey, we're here to protect mutant interests and we're going to do whatever it takes to do so, that actually nicely defines X-Force by contrast. And I think that's one of the reasons that I don't mind the MLF as villains, even if the individual characters aside from Tempo were pretty boring. I still always have to correct myself from thinking of them as the multilateral force. Yeah, and I still go for the mother I'd love to front thing because apparently my brain got stuck in the early 2000s. Wow. So Cable is likewise unimpressed with the MLF. In his opinion, they're pretty derivative. How many times do idiots like you have to make the same mistakes? Strife, Magneto, Apocalypse. Now you... When will any of you learn that the subjugation of humans doesn't mean liberation for mutants? Not only do the MLF members not buy that, but Farrell's not too sure she believes it either, and Rainfire taps in to her uncertainty. Then stand with us, Farrell. Use this opportunity. Send a message to the oppressive human cows. Slay Gyrick alive right now. You have to help me out here, Rainfire. I'm trying to teach these children the difference between right and wrong. And all along, I've stressed there's a time for flay and a time for work. Cable, you nerd! A time for flay? Like, that's the most violent dad joke ever! Yeah! Yeah, and I really respect it. He's trying, man. This is what happens when Cable tries to make dad jokes. They're full of blood and viscera. They have as many guns and muscles as he does. <laughs> well, anyway, Cable still apparently has some faith in Farrell because he orders Farrell to get Gyrick out of there and protect him as they escape. And... Gyrick, who apparently has zero survival instinct, just keeps going on and on and on to Farrell about how this doesn't change anything, and he knows that X-Force is just as bad as the MLF, and he knows everything that, you know, she did to her family, and what a terrible person she is. I know that being a mutant has nothing to do with you being a cold-blooded killer as well, but being a mutant just makes the fact that you are a killer all the more dangerous. Farrell, as you may recall, is basically evil Bert from Sesame Street. She did a lot of murder because her fa someone messed with her pigeons. Yeah. So sure enough, Farrell does try to kill Henry Peter Gyrick, but she's interrupted as Tempo stops the attack using her time-shifting powers. Are they gonna switch teams? 
In fact, they are momentarily, and I like this. This is a nice reversal slash parallel. It once again showcases the thin but solid line between the MLF and X-Force as we realize that Tempo maybe kind of belongs more with X-Force and Feral maybe kind of belongs more with the MLF. That's kind of been the case since both of their first appearances. Now, Rainfire pulls some good of the many stuff. He says that killing Gyrick is necessary to save thousands or millions in the future. And as Miles alluded to, Rainfire was originally supposed to be a time-traveling Sunspot. He'll eventually be revealed to be kind of a semi-clone of Sunspot with compli- complicated protoplasmic goo additions. It's, it's iffy. It's totally iffy, but here we see one of the things I really enjoy as we do our research and our coverage of the history of the X-Men, which is foreshadowing that ends up being completely dropped, but is so clearly foreshadowing. This is like foreshadowing shadow puppets, where you look and you go, oh my god, birds are coming, oh, nope, that's just some dude's hands. (laughs) Right, foreshadow us, interrupt us. I'm, I'm gonna call it foreshadow puppets. I like that, I like that. Rainfire asks Feral to join the Mutant Liberation Front, and she accepts readily without hesitation she's mad enough and she's been frustrated for long enough that this just makes sense to her and honestly as a reader it makes sense to me i am deeply relieved that this means i don't have to do her voice again for a while (laughs) that's entirely valid and in fact aside from a two-issue storyline coming up pretty soon we're gonna see very very little of feral in the future of the marvel universe you know i'm okay with that yeah yeah she's certainly not my favorite rob liefeld creation Like, her entire personality is just kind of being terrible. Pretty much that. Well, the bad guys all fly away, with Moonstar and Locus blasting at Gyrick as they drop him from the sky, but Sunspot has already made the connection, as young me did not, that Moonstar is clearly Mirage, and he refuses to let his friend commit cold-blooded murder. So, and I love this part, he decides... The only way to save Gyrick is to somehow fly, and I want to save Gyrick so much that I'm going to use my powers to somehow fly, and he does. Oh, kiddo. This is the superhero comic book logic that I show up for. I'm really sad that this doesn't work in real life. I know, right? Oh, it would be so good. So, Sunspot is successful. He flies up in the air in a big burst of Sunspot power graphics and intercepts Locus's teleportation beam. Somehow, this means the beam feeds back and they both just vanish. Now, Locus had told various people, the readers included, that her powers let her teleport her target to anywhere that either she had been before or her target had been before. And given that Sunspot has been to places like Asgard and space, that could pretty much be anywhere. It, he he just shows up in, like, Gideon's ready room. God damn it. Oh, fucking Gideon. Again, it's okay. Gideon's off, off in Paris with Kendra. Well, Sunspot will indeed be gone for quite a while until after the Age of Apocalypse storyline. Wow, I'd forgotten he was gone for quite that long. Yeah, it makes me sad because one of my favorite things to happen to X-Force was for it to feel more and more like old New Mutants, and so much of that was the old characters coming back. It's okay. He's going to come back. He's going to buy AIM. It's going to be amazing. There is that. Yeah. Um, Gyrick, for his part, is equally disenchanted with the events, but mostly because he's stubborn and absolutely static as a character. If anything, Cable, I am more convinced than ever that you and your kind pose a threat to humanity. Dude, you were the guy with a cyborg super soldier on your fucking lawn. 
God damn it, Henry Peter Gyrick, you jerk. That brings us to X-Force 29 and 30, both written by Fabian Nicesa, 29 penciled by Matt Broom, 30 by Tony Daniel, 29 inked by Bud LaRosa, 30 inked by Will Conrad, John Holdridge, and Jason Gorder, and both covered by Marie Javins. And once again, we've, we've got that Matt Broom is there to make us appreciate Tony Daniel. And we've also got one of, one of my favorite sort of side things. I never stop finding it vaguely amusing when the X-Men or members of the X-Men or X-adjacent teams show up in Phoenix, Arizona. I know, right? You'd think they would show up and go, hey, we're in Phoenix. Oh, too soon. Mm. It's it's always too soon in Phoenix, Arizona. And anyway, that's where they are, and they are taking the day off. Richter is out running errands. Shatterstar has come into town with him in order to interact more with the people of Earth to better assimilate himself to their culture. He has also learned how to tell time and make at least one joke, and I am very proud of him. Y'all, go Shatterstar. Go give Yidra 7. We love you. We appreciate the progress you're making. And he and Richter also seem to be getting along much, much better. Um, Richter is, is you know, asking if, if he's sure he's going to be okay on his own and, you know, making sure he knows when and where to meet him and generally being a good, good buddy. Shatterstar, alas, is not going to get to practice his normal human interaction skills. He immediately gets kidnapped by Arcade, as one does. And I am so pleased to report that Arcade, despite having taken Murder World on the road in ambiguous ways that we never really fully understand, is still using a garbage truck to kidnap people, and thus I can only assume the last thing those people hear before they are kidnapped is the phenomenal sound effect, SFLANG! Now, Arcade has been commissioned to kill Shatterstar by Major Domo acting on Mojo's behalf. We'll find that out much later, but it's not something that really impacts the story, so you might as well know it going in. He wakes up in Murder World, and he is super unimpressed with the whole deal. And his first response in realizing he's going to have to fight his way through this place is to take off his shirt. Does that mean he's rich? Is this a secret uh, way of, of realizing that he's suddenly rich? He's rich in improbable swords and... Hair? I mean, that's probably the central currency somewhere. Who's also here is a bunch of soldiers from Mojo's Imperial Protectorate. Apparently they've been brought here, presumably by Major Domo, to fight Shatterstar. And I'm a little sad here because the soldiers that Matt Broom draws are just like dudes in purple armor, which, yes, I guess are basically the same soldiers that Shatterstar faced in his first appearance when he got teleported into a latter-day issue of New Mutants. But still, you could totally go back to all of these bizarre, monstery animal people with strange armor and big, weird energy weapons. Like, Mojo World has such a glorious library of bonkers monsters that work for Mojo, and really, you just choose some dudes in purple armor? Yeah, step it up, past Matt Broom. Right? Now, these soldiers aren't actually there to fight Shatterstar. Arcade has told them that it's a contest, and the winner is going to be the first one to kill this random innocent family of four, whom he's also kidnapped. Shatterstar does manage to save them by being a total badass, but he's even more unimpressed with how useless Earth kids are than he's been in the past. Are all children on this world so inefficient in the ways of survival? It's true, Shatterstar. Small children are bad at everything. That joke just never really stops being funny. It's funny with Cerise, it's funny with Shatterstar. Mm-hmm. 
Now, Shatterstar previously was just a dude who fought people in an arena for the entertainment of the masses, but he's kind of matured since he's been with X-Force. There is more to the battle, I have learned, than merely coming out victorious. What you fight for and how you fight are just as important. Yay, Shatterstar! Again! Now, Shatterstar manages to free the family, but he doesn't get to leave. Instead, Arcade orders him to dress up in his old costume to fight someone else. Guess who it is, Miles? It is totally Adam X, the X-Tree! That's right, Arcade has been hired by a mysterious third party to test out Adam X's abilities. So he's decided that he's going to, you know, kill two metaphorical birds with one metaphorical stone and have these dudes fight each other. Now, the person who has hired him to test out Adam's abilities is named only very briefly in issue 30. And his name is mentioned offhand as Mr. Milbury, which, as you may recall, is one of Mr. Sinister, Nathaniel Essex's favorite pseudonyms. You remember that thing we were talking about, about foreshadowing that never gets picked up on because plot lines are dropped? Uh, yeah, that. Third Summer's Brother alert, right here. Luckily for us, Tony Daniel shows up in time to draw this fight, and Adam X and Shatterstar really don't want to fight because they recognize that they should be bros broing out. Um, but Mojo has captured someone and told Adam that she'll die unless he kills Shatterstar. Adam has no idea who this person is, but Shatterstar recognizes her immediately. Her name is Winsong, and she is Shatterstar's wife. And based on her name and based on the outfit she's wearing, I'm pretty sure she just got imported whole cloth from ElfQuest. That seems reasonably likely. Now, we should say that, that while the conclusion you may draw here, and you would not be wrong in doing so, is that in the 90s, it was everyone turned out to be secretly married. Um, when Shatterstar uses the term wife, he's using it with somewhat different connotations than, for instance, Gambit and Belladonna were um, specifically... He and Winsong have never met, but they were they were assigned pretty much purely to procreate at some point. Mm-hmm. But we don't find that out for a while, because we have to have a great big fight in the meantime with Adam X and Shatterstar beating the hell out of each other and being very 90s about it. Yeah, they, they yell a lot. Um, I should also mention that that the Winsong who is here, in fact, both of the Winsongs who are here, because the second one will show up later, are just holograms. Uh, the actual Winsong is home, probably not particularly safe, but... um. In Mojo World, rather than in, in Murder World. Now, our spiky boys inevitably team up and turn on Arcade. And uh, Shatterstar also decides that he needs a one-word tagline, like Adam X's. Uh, you know, Adam X yells, burn. Um, and Shatterstar decides that he's going to yell, bleed. And Adam thinks that's super cool, and he is definitely mistaken, but it's pretty cute. Are you going to tell me that a guy who gets his own hot pink bladed drop shadows under all of his speech bubbles does not know what's cool? You kind of answered your own question there, buddy. I know. But I think we may have different conclusions. Yeah, so speaking of badass mo- you 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 wrote OTP OTP here. I see I just want them to be like kindergartners in a sandbox. I mean, I'm fine with that. Like, I'm not saying that they have to hook up or anything. Honestly, I think Shatterstar and Richter are a fine couple. But uh, I just love their every interaction. I just want to see Shatterstar and Adam X hang out all the time and, like, fight each other for about 50% of that time and fight somebody else teamed up with each other for the other 50%. 
I want to see them play make-believe on a playground. I like this plan. Probably some people would die. It can be an evil playground or something, but like, they, they're both so into the performance of it, and they're having so much fun, and it's really cute and murdery, but also cute. Um, so there are also some pretty intense moments. Um, Shatterstar, so, so when they both believe that Windsong is still real, Adam's like, I'm sorry, they said unless I kill you, they'll kill her. And Shatterstar is like, well, I don't want to kill you, so okay, and just literally fucking stabs himself. He runs himself through with his sword, just like he did in his first appearance, but with less, you know, tracing of a different panel from Frank Miller's Ronin comic. He does this as a distraction because he's Shatterstar. Um, Specifically, he knows his own anatomy well enough to miss organs and he knows his own healing factor well enough to be like, yeah, I'll be fine in like a minute and a half and it'll be long enough to trick them. So he he springs back up just in time um, to to stab Arcade, who, of course, turns out to be a robot duplicate of Arcade. It's always a robot duplicate. It is. So Shatterstar and Adam X decide to get the hell out of there. They've had their fun for the day. And Shatterstar meets back up with Richter. And decides he's, after after telling Richter that, you know, his day was uneventful and fine, pauses and kind of changes his cadence and decides he's actually going to start telling Richter stuff and and trying to person. And it's... it's Everything about this story is really heartwarming, except maybe for the murder parts. One of the things I love most about X-Force, and there are many things at this point, is that Shatterstar's emotional and psychological development, his bonding with the man that will later become his serious romantic partner, comes out of him fighting a guy named Adam X the Extreme in a location called Murder World. Comic books. God, I love Fabian Nacesa. Now, we've been telling you all about what Shatterstar's been up to on this very strange day, but the rest of X-Force is doing stuff also, so let's take a detour back to Camp Verde, X-Force's base. Well, first, foremost, and most important, Sam Guthrie is preparing to take Tabitha back to Kentucky to introduce her to the one and only Ma Guthrie. Right? I love this so much! Also, I just really love Sam and Boom Boom as a couple. Like, I know it's not gonna last permanently, whatever, that's fine, but they clearly are just so good for each other at this point in time, and so this is heartwarming. What I love is Cable and his adult children tentatively figuring out how to renegotiate their relationship, as Cable asks Sam. Are you sure taking this vacation is the safest thing to do right now, Sam? Well, let's see. Since my last break, we formed X-Force, I kinda died, I came back to life, you died, we got arrested, I ran the team, you came back, Ileana died, we fought Magneto, the Mutant Liberation Front came back, and my old teammate Danny Moonstar may be one of them. My best friend Bobby disappeared fighting them, and we ain't found hide nor hair of him since, so we don't even know if he's still alive, and well, here we are. I guess you do need a vacation at that. And then he's all, he all stands there and waves at them and is like, have a safe trip! Oh man, it reminds me of every time I would go to see my my paternal grandparents. Like, there was this ritual where as we were driving away, they would wave at us and we would wave back out the car window until we were out of sight of each other. I bet Cable does that. I bet Cable makes them call when they get there, too. (laughs) He totally does. This new version of Cable, emotionally available dad Cable with his murdery dad jokes, is just the fucking best. I know! I'm so deeply and weirdly attached to him now. Um... 
So dad cable having a, 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 an excess of dad feelings decides he's going to go and dad at tempo who is hanging out at Camp Verde having a minor personal crisis. She really just wants to go home and go back to college. And that's what she's ultimately going to do. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of a tease of, hey, maybe I should ask Tempo if she wants to be on my team. But no, she really doesn't. She's just so disillusioned by the superhero supervillain thing. And on the one hand, I love Tempo as a character and I would love to see her further developed. But on the other hand, I mean, this makes sense. If I were Tempo, I would not want to be part of any of this. I have a massive soft spot for characters realizing that having superpowers does not obligate them to dress up in a costume and punch. Exactly. So Siren, however, uh, has a little bit less clarity. She's once again heavily drinking and obsessing over whether Sunspot's disappearance is her fault, whether if she'd handled the battle just a little bit differently, maybe things would have been okay. She and Warpath have a very special episode moment complete with yelled revelations, and later he finds her and she says, you know, she needs to get her, her head back together. Will he come back to Cassidy keep with her? So... I guess there's going to be leprechauns now. X-Force and leprechauns. Man, I wish. I mean, there will be Black Tom and the Juggernaut, and I guess they're a lot of fun too, but they're no leprechauns, I'll tell you what. It's true, it's true. So one of our listeners on our blog pointed out in the comments that Siren is one of the most prominent Irish superheroes at this point, and she's also one of the most prominent alcoholic superheroes at this point, and that's uncomfortable given a lot of the stereotypes that were and are present and i guess i just sort of glossed over that but that's a really good point and it definitely makes these scenes a little less comfortable for me to read yeah it's a pretty massive problem yeah but oh well i mean siren at least is uh getting more of a personality so i like that part uh speaking of drinking cable is at his wits end with these kids, and so he calls the only person he can think of to help, and that is everyone's favorite wine mom, Domino. And she grudgingly agrees to come, because Cable's been through a whole lot of shit, and this is her role, this is her job, is to be the responsible in some ways, irresponsible in others, wine mom of X-Force. Let me get this straight. You want me to hang out with you, here, in these barracks. You never were one for silk lace and soft carpeting. I'm starting to regret that, Nate. What do you expect out of me? I expect you to be yourself. The kids need that. They need you. Oh, I get it. Isn't that rich? Be myself? How can I do that when the domino all these kids knew was that scheming metamorph Vanessa Carlyle impersonating me? And I've impersonated a heartless soldier, and Strife has impersonated me. Around here, we're used to that kind of thing. Now, let me show you this very, very long bathtub. <laughs> oh, I hope so. And so, there we are. Mirage is maybe back in the main Marvel Universe, Sunspot is mysteriously gone, Domino has rejoined the team, Sam and Tabitha are off to Kentucky... I'm not going to say a gigantic amount happens in these issues, but once again, it's just the characters' lives continuing to evolve, the world continuing to turn, people continuing to stab each other. What I am really enjoying is, again, that foreshadow puppet tease and the gradual yet un unrealized buildup of, of Adam X as the third Summers brother. I know, and thankfully, we'll still see some more Adam X before he completely falls off continuity for decades. 
the thing is, this is being done really well. Like, this is the kind of thing I would throw in if I were doing that, because not that many people are going to catch the Mr. Milbury name. And the ones who do are going to have big exclamation point moments, but still not be entirely sure what it means. Yeah, I know. It's so frustrating because I just do not like Gabriel Summers. I do not like X-Men Deadly Genesis and the stuff that happened in his story. And if Adam X had been the third Summers brother, I think it would have been a much better, much more 90s, yes, but much better story. Miles, I think if, like, a jar of quarters had been the third Summers brother, it would have been better. A jar of quarters that skateboards around, is covered in blades, and yells burn. Seriously, yeah, no, no, Vulcan's awful. I know, I'm sure somebody likes Vulcan, and they're about to send us a very angry email. And we're sorry, buddy. Um, he's, he's certainly an intri- he certainly makes for some interesting narrative choices. But yeah, no, he's awful. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I mean, there were some cool stories that came out of Vulcan stuff. I like the rise and fall of the Shi'ar Empire. That was pretty good. On that convoluted note of continuity, um, you know, go straight to another one, because you listeners have questions. Franklin asks via email, Jean Grey lost her telepathy when she came back for X-Factor, right? But when did she officially get it back? I remember you said she had a telepathic bond with baby Nathan Christopher, but when and how did her full telepathic abilities return? So this actually took me kind of a while to read up on, and I say this as somebody who almost certainly covered this on an episode of the podcast, and ultimately, I found in our notes the answer. Jean Grey went without her full telepathy through Inferno, through Judgment War, all the way to Endgame in X-Factor number 65, I believe, and she got her telepathy back when the member of the Dark Riders, Synapse, attacked her telepathically. That's right, a D-list, at best, villain from a forgotten supervillain team used his powers on Jean, and this enormous plot point that had been the case for years and years and years was undone. Oh damn, I'm slightly ashamed to say that I thought it happened during Judgment War. I actually remembered that as well. I mean, she does that thing where she channels everybody's feelings through Cyclops' eyes, and maybe you could see that as her telepathy beginning to come back, because that was right around the same time that she reintegrated her mind with that of the Phoenix clone of her and of Madeline Pryor, but the official time that it fully comes back was, uh, yeah, when Synapse gave her the telepathic whammy. But then again, that's kind of what X-Factor's Endgame story was about. It was about resetting the status quo in preparation for the merging of the X-Factor and X-Men team members and the 1991 relaunch. This was the same time that baby Nathan Christopher was written out, that we got a retcon that made Cyclops seem like much less of a jerk for leaving Madeline Pryor, that Beast was already talking multiple times about missing being on the X-Men. So I guess it makes sense to bring Jean Grey back to the Jean Grey that we knew and loved from way back in the day. I mean, from way, way back in the day, she wasn't a telepath. That's true. So there was basically this period from part of the Silver Age to the Phoenix Saga where she was. It was, to be fair, a pretty definitive brief period. Meanwhile, Alex asks via Twitter, what's your favorite resurrection story? Okay, my answer is going to be the bad answer. I really like super casual resurrections, like... Battle of the Atom number one, when um, Kid Cyclops briefly dies and Adult Cyclops disappears and then Triage just shows up and they both come back. Right, yeah, he just uses his healing powers and suddenly the time stream is restored and it's like a super chill thing. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, he's kind of freaked out about it, but it's all right. Um, Also, I, I like sort of the weird ones, like the time Storm died, came back as a space whale and then got a new body. 
freaking space whale. I, I love that part. There's so much wonderful stuff in the Brood saga that it's really easy to overlook the fact that Storm turned into a space whale. Yeah, everyone's all like, Carol Danvers, Wolverine first-person narration for the first time, adventures, getting possessed, and they totally forget the space whale shit. I mean, to be fair, I'm pretty sure we've forgotten it once or twice, too. But not right now. Never. I'm actually going to go for a more recent example. I was a big fan of the Phoenix Resurrection story recently, when Jean Grey came back uh, maybe a year or so ago. I mean, the Phoenix Resurrection miniseries itself was was good. I, I enjoyed it. I think it was a well-done miniseries. But what I really appreciated was the aftermath of that. It wasn't just Jean's back, back to the status quo. It was Jean's back after 15 real-world years, and she has 15 real-world years of continuity to adjust to. She has her idealism tested by all of the changes that the X-Men and the Marvel Universe have made, and she wants to fix things. And I think that's how you do a resurrection, is you don't just bring things back to the way they were, you don't just undo a death, but you use that narrative opportunity to show how a character would react to literally coming back from the dead, how that character's friends would react to somebody that they had mourned and laid to rest all of a sudden being there again so mad props to everybody involved in that i also really enjoyed nightcrawler's return in amazing x-men a few years ago oh yeah yeah the x-men got to go to heaven to fight demon pirates with a crew of angel pirates and nightcrawler and it was just bonkers you know if more resurrections involved pirate battles i think i'd feel better about the whole revolving door of death thing i completely agree and, of course, you can't really forget Colossus's return in Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. It was incredibly emotionally intense. And, I mean, maybe it cheapened his sacrifice to end the legacy virus, but it was just such a beautifully written and drawn moment that I have to love it anyway. One thing I also love, as do you, Jay, are our listeners. It's true. We love you all very much. And part of why, but only part, is that we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement for various fictional characters and concepts. Let's hear today from the angry Claremontian narrator. It's been a rough road to ride, Matthew Dirk. Alone, with not even memories to guide or comfort you. Does Jeff McWiggan have the answers? Or is he going to be just another speed bump beneath the wheels of your improbably fancy motorcycle? Also, should you really be riding a motorcycle with your trench coat unsecured? That seems dangerous. Be careful. You never know what's around the next curve in the road. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and check out our brand new Concussive Force t-shirt designed for our fifth anniversary by Stephanie Lantry. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're going back to yet another single-character miniseries with a very unlikely protagonist. 